would I rather be feared or loved? Um, easy, both. I want people to be afraid of how much they love me. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Echo Chamber. With us today, again, is Adam Altman. I love being here. And Pierce Conway. Hey, hey. And I'm your host, Russell McBride. The first thing we're going to start with today is just to get a little update on how everyone's doing with online learning so far. So what do you think, Goldmans? Well, I think this has been a really depressing week for most of us. Um, that, um, I mean, the building is silent. There is like, it's just, it's like a wasteland here. Um, so <laughs> I think what we're, we're, we're realizing. It's a nice is, building. <laughs> it's a nice building. <laughs> yeah, it's a, oh yeah, it's nice. Uh, it's just, um, I think, uh, we're all feeling the same kind of concern that, uh, natural conversations and relationship building is going to be a huge obstacle. Yeah. What about you, Conway? Yeah, the, the lack of interaction is the toughest part. I'm used to walking around and having like a hundred small conversations with all the new students, kind of getting a feel for their personality. And it's just so tough online. Whereas I've had like three conversations with students at this point. Normally I would already have a good feel for most of the kids that are in my class by the third or fourth day of teaching. So it's just a challenge shifting the relationship side and figuring out how to engage with those kids from afar. Yeah, I, I feel like I had to make a fool out of myself just to get them to respond. Like, yeah. here's something outrageous about me. Come at me, bro. Um, and even that was difficult. So my, my self-esteem is low because of that. <laughs> um, I regret most of what I've said on those live chats. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, so that's that's where I'm at. Good yeah. thing we're not allowed to re record them. Right, There's right. There's no evidence of That's your right. terrible jokes. Yeah, you were just dreaming that. You know, the reality is, is I've talked to a lot of teachers about this. I'm, I feel fairly competent with technology and education, but trying to solely teach online, no matter what my level of competence is with tech tools, I feel wholly incompetent as an educator in a Google Meet or whatever it may be. It's just, it's different. All the things we've learned about how we can operate a classroom and start the school year, and they've, they've disappeared. Yeah. I feel like our jobs are safe. We're not going to be replaced by robots, I don't think. It feels like it. <laughs> we all, you, it feels like we are? We won't be. Oh, yeah, 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 I don't think. No, no hot take there. No yeah, hot take there. I am way better than a robot. Well, good to hear. Obviously, we're all trying our best, and you know, I think a lot of teachers in the state and across the country are. The reality is, um, as teachers are going to fail, they're going to make mistakes, uh, but hopefully we'll be better. And like we said last week, hopefully everyone will be even more excited to learn in the classroom. So we're going to move on to our main topic for today. We're going to talk about the United States Postal Service and mail-in voting. Unless your head has been under a rock, or maybe you're too busy trying to teach online, you should have noticed that there's a little bit of controversy in D.C. over the Postal Service and mail-in voting. So does someone want to just give us an overview of what's going on with this topic? Well, first of all, I, I, first of all, I wanted to segue with, uh, we earlier this week celebrated the official 100 years of women's suffrage, the 19th Amendment. Um, and so uh, that was kind of a, a nice way to segue into elections. Um, I think President Trump pardoned Susan B. Anthony, um, 
he had a big pardon announcement. Everyone thought it was going to be some other person. Um, who was it that they thought it was going to be? It was not... Um, not Michael Flynn, but... Uh, I think it was Michael Flynn. Oh, Michael Flynn. People were thinking it was going to be Michael Flynn, but... Uh, Susan B. Anthony, if you don't know, she was arrested for trying to vote illegally before the 19th Amendment was passed. Um, and so she had a criminal record, and President Trump has pardoned her posthumously. So anyway, that segues nicely into the, the topic for this week of, of the election that's coming up and how we're going to do that. And the, the gist of it is that um, with COVID, there's a lot of concern about the polls and going to the polls and so should the U.S. government allow, um, and really it's a state decision, but should the U.S. allow the states to um, do more mail-in voting absentee val- ballots? Um, and uh, President Trump is against it. Uh, President Trump is um, calling, um, bringing up concerns about uh, voter fraud through mail, that kind of stuff. And so that's kind of um, shook the hornet's nest. I don't know anything else you guys want to add. Yeah, I think it's important to know there's a lot of caveats to all of this. Like, President Trump seems to be coming out against um, mail-in voting, but he's in favor of absentee ballots. Am I saying this right? Because he is actually voting by mail in Florida. He voted in the previous election by mail. He's voting in this one. He's come out in support of Florida's mail-in ballot policy. Uh, but he's obviously come out against other states. I think one example is um, the RNC is actually suing Rhode Island over kind of loosening of their restrictions. So it, it, it's a straightforward topic in a sense, but there's all these different um, wordings people are using to kind of describe what it is. Yeah, and to speak to that, and we're going to link this uh, source in the, the notes, but um, I pulled some stuff off the Pew Research Center um, and – Right, I think, so 65% of Americans support early voting or an absentee voting system um, without providing any excuse as to why. So 65% of Americans say you should be able to vote absentee and it doesn't matter why, you should just be able to do it. But to your point, I think what President Trump would say is, yes, he's voting absentee in Florida, but he has a legitimate reason. And so uh, the the Pew Research Center pointed out that uh, 60% percent of Republicans uh, scratch that it was 37 percent believe that coronavirus is not a good reason I think is that the is that yeah. the statistic you're gonna yeah basically Democrats are two times as more likely to yeah. say that you shouldn't have to have a reason to vote absentee and Republicans are of course less likely to say that and it's just kind of interesting uh, but I think that's where the, the caveat is, is President Trump says, well, I have a good reason. Everyone else should, too. Whereas most Democrats are saying it shouldn't matter what the reason is. COVID should be enough. Of a reason. So another interesting thing from the Pew Research, you should definitely go look at those figures. But it kind of does a comparison of a poll they did in 2018 versus 2020. And it shows that Democrats' beliefs have pretty much stayed the same as to whether or not Um, mail-in voting should take place. There's some specific wording at Pew you should look at. But Republicans actually, I think, dropped by 10%, uh, actually do not support it anymore, um, kind of in this new 2020 climate. So it's an interesting thing to see uh, this issue, like many other things we've talked about in previous weeks, has become a partisan issue. Yeah, it did seem to 
changed in these last two years. So COVID didn't cause the Democrats to want more mail-in voting. Uh, but in two years, Republicans, like you said, they, they oppose it even more now than they did before. Right. Where we're going with that is, of course, um, the president's been in the news um, lately regarding um, the United States Postal Service and the viability um, and um, legitimacy of having more mail-in or absentee ballots. Does anyone want to speak to that? So fun fact or little trivia question here before we jump into talking about the, the Postal Service. Kahoot? So the uh, Postal Service can trace its origins back to 1775 in the Second Con Continental Congress. Does anyone know who the first Postmaster General was? Oh, man. Very prominent figure from the time. Okay. He was not a president. Benjamin Franklin. Benjamin Franklin is correct. Wow. I'm sure all of you congrats. at home got that as well. So congrats on correctly answering the, the trivia question of the day. But yeah, the, the Postal Service can be traced all the way back to seven, 1775. Um, it was at various points um, like an official agency underneath the U.S. government. Now it's an independent agency, still kind of under the wing of the U.S. government, but with basically operates on its own. Um, most of the like subsidies from the federal government are now gone and they've been uh, removed over the course of the last 30 years or so. So just a little, a little background on the USPS. Thanks for that, I love trivia. So that's, yeah, uh, if, if you guys go to trivia night at any point, maybe with uh, your current events category might include something like that. So be sure to take that one with you. So fast forward like 200 years, 200 <laughs> some years, right? And suddenly the Postal Service is in the midst of this kind of chaos. And, you know, we've talked about the Postal Service as a country a lot, probably what the past 10, 20 years, because they've been losing money. There's been changes, kind of bills that have been passed that have kind of tied their hands for how much they can charge. Um, and they've, they've had a hard time competing with FedEx, UPS, etc. Uh, the Republicans for a while have been saying maybe we should take the U USPS private. Uh, Democrats obviously believe the Postal Service is a public good. It's a service that should just exist, whether it's profitable or not. But now a bunch of states need to use the post office as a part of their mail-in ballots. So this is how these two things kind of tie in. And the Postmaster General has pretty much said, well, you know, some of the changes we've been making around the post office uh, – we don't believe we will be able to support some of these states with their mail-in ballot campaigns to follow their regulations about timeliness. It's interesting that, so I uh, saw that the USPS has the highest approval rating of any government agency. So it is number one in terms of approval rating of, by the public. So 91% of Americans held a favorable view of the USPS. Um, I mean, that says a lot. Like, people hate government agencies. Right. Yes. So compare that to um, the Department of Justice, which was around 60% with a favorable view, and that's really uh, dictated by who, which political party is in power as to who supports the Department of Justice and, and who doesn't. So the USPS, uh, up until this point, has largely avoided any sort of partisan politics. Um, but it, with sorry, the mail... I mean, do you think that that... Is that saying that... Like we, like the public, is confident 
in the USPS and their ability to handle this much mail? It, it, I mean, I don't know if that's a right, a good leap. Is that what you would interpret that 91% approval rating to be? Or is it possible that Americans haven't even thought about that? I mean, yeah. Americans approve of the fact that when they go open their mailbox, there it's is there. mail. There's mail. Yeah. Okay. And there's a nice, friendly person <laughs> delivering their mail that you get to wave to every once in a while. I think it does. Uh, probably fair to say that this statistic does not take into account Google reviews of our local USPS <laughs> stores because those do not have a 91% rating. Yeah, I think it's, it's interesting because that, I mean, that looks 91% of Americans hold a favorable view. But yeah, I don't think people really think critically about the USPS that much. I don't. It's like I get my mail. Um, and when it comes to an operation of this magnitude, though, would that number uh, be different? Anyway, so I interrupted you, but you were going somewhere with that. Uh, I got slightly sidetracked because I looked up our local <laughs> USPS it's pretty on, bad, on Google it? reviews. Okay. Yeah, we, uh, Apex's USPS has a 2.1 stars Holy out of cow. 5. Holy cow. I thought you were going to say 2.1% approval. <laughs> <laughs> no. Uh, so 2.1 stars with 158 reviews, so that's not a small sample size. I think it's fair to note, I, obviously we're derailing a bit here, <laughs> but people who post Google reviews tend to be people who are already upset about something. So, so I, don't look up my Google review. I, <laughs> I would like to say that I've been pretty happy with the, with the Postal Service offices in this area so far. I mean, I have. I would agree. They've they've uh, introduced what is it? Uh, you can track all your mail online. So I get an email every day telling me with pictures of what's coming in yeah. the mailbox, which is pretty wild. Like that's seems like quite the undertaking in order to do that. Uh, and, but I really appreciate it because that way I know if something that was supposed to come to me like gets misplaced, so or if I, I know when like an important check is coming in the mail, yeah, uh, and I can make sure to go get it close to when it's delivered. So to segue a bit. I, I signed up for the same thing. It's called like informed delivery. Yeah. So suddenly I'm paying nothing, but I'm getting images of all the mail we're getting, tracking numbers of, of packages, etc. The mail is not more expensive to send than it was before this happened. I'm not paying any subscriptions. And this is, this is something that's coming up right now is, is the Postal Service loses quite a bit of money right now every year. So what's the responsibility for them to become profitable? Can they become profitable with the regulations we have? And so they would have to increase their, like the, the cost of a stamp in order to increase revenue as well as charge more for shipping through them, which would probably just drive people to UPS and FedEx. Yeah, but then it loses its public service, right? It's, yeah. it's going, this is a service for for people who maybe can't necessarily afford that competition that would emerge of you know having to go through UPS or or whatever it is, um, is it is its value not monetary but the fact that it is a service that all Americans have accessibility to? I think it was essential for people who didn't have. I mean. It, not I think, it was essential for people who do not have bank accounts uh, for a direct deposit for the uh, coronavirus relief checks. So uh, I personally signed up for the direct deposit and it was added automatically to my account. But if I didn't have a bank account, then I would have been like waiting and relying upon the USPS for a timely delivery of uh, 
such an important check. And and the USPS, they w- they will deliver to any American, as opposed to FedEx and U- UPS. They're going to ask the question: Was well, it profitable to deliver here? And if it's not profitable, then they don't have to deliver to you. Whereas the UPS, USPS will deliver to every American, no matter how rural they might be. So yeah, does the privatization of the USPS is that going to add to a list of inequities that exist uh, for people in different areas? I think inevitably it would. So it, in privatizing the USPS, in in theory, the USPS would then start catering to um, people with more money because they need they would have to generate more revenue, and therefore that means that they would be taking into account less the needs of lower income people or people that are uh, not going to be generating as much revenue for the USPS. So going along the idea of talking about the Postal Service, um, I noticed Pete Buttigieg jumped into the argument on Twitter, and he made the statement, the Postal Service isn't a business, it's a service. That's why we call it the Postal Service. Now, he did that in reply. The Postal Service has lost $69 billion over the past 11 fiscal years. So people are making the point that, well, they're losing tons of money, we should privatize it, find a way to make it profitable. Buttigieg, he's making the argument, no, it's a public service, right? We don't go to the military and say, how much money have you made this year? Are you profitable? We don't go to other institutions in the United States and ask about their profitability. So if we approach the USPS as a service, do we even need to worry about how much money they're losing? Yeah, I think that's sometimes gets lost in it, is it? Not all government agencies are, in fact, you would say most government services aren't designed to, to make money. Um, they're costly, which makes it all the more important to weigh what do you expect your government to do for you, because they are costly. But yeah, this seems to me like one of those that um, I mean, mail is important. I mean, it's it's to to make it into a a thing that is designed to turn a profit is ultimately going to exclude. I think, and I don't know that for a fact. I haven't done my research on that, but I think it ultimately would exclude certain segments of the population and um, with no guarantee that the the Postal Service is going to be profitable. Right, and if it continues to be unprofitable after you privatize it, what what do they go to then? At some point, whoever's owning it um, will have to make a decision. Are we going to continue to lose money? Are we going to seek government subsidies? Or are we going to stop servicing areas? Um, it would become business decisions, and that service aspect would be lost for some people. Maybe the focus by the USPS should be not to be competing with FedEx and UPS. Maybe you could scale down their services, and it just is that service, and instead of trying to to be that competitor. Yeah, and we don't have to dive into this, but I think a lot of people have argued that maybe we should make the USPS more extensive to offer more services like bank accounts, et cetera, to find more ways to potentially make them profitable. Uh, one thing that I've loved seeing on Twitter recently is a bunch of people buying USPS swag. They released a backpack. Uh, they have like little toy cars. You, you really all need to go check it out now because their, their backpack is pretty, pretty uh, what's a trendy word to you, slapping? Is that... Slapping. That word kids Slapping. use that's these for, days. That's for like if you're eating ribs or something. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah. Fair enough. Uh, it's pretty cool. I wouldn't trust. 
Oh. Then, <laughs> All right. Just because he says something confident like that doesn't mean he knows exactly what it means. Why are you as being we learn. such a chad right now? I don't understand. I just know the so, slang. So let, let's 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 go full circle here. Let's go full circle. Okay. So let, we've gone down the path of U, UP, USPS privatization services, etc. So let's tie this all together. Mail-in voting, we're suddenly being faced with potentially one of the biggest demands for mail-in voting in U.S. history, and we're inevitably confronted with the idea that our postal service might not be equipped to handle it, or people concerned that our president might undermine the postal service's ability to handle it, which I think he has gone on record. We're going to post the link down below. He's gone on record saying... He's going to withhold funding so they can't implement some of the things they need to for mail-in voting. So what do you guys think? Tie these two things together. What are your thoughts on what's happening right now between these? Well, I don't know. I think it, the question has to be raised. Why, why would he flat out just say that? Um, and if it's because he thinks by giving more funding to the USPS that it's going to allow more mail-in voting and he's going to lose the election – that's not a good reason, right? You, you can't say I'm going to withhold funding so I can win an election. I mean, people do it all the time, but uh, this is one of these things. Like the election is not um, something that to, to mess around with. Like the election, this is like the the in the bedrock of our U.S. democracy and system of government, um, and that a president is is threatening to use his executive powers, which I don't think he has anyway. But his executive powers to um, to to stifle voters to me is an outrageous. I'll just say an outrageous abuse of power. And I'm not trying to be partisan here. I just think it's very clear in this instance. Um, and so, to me, it comes down to elections are important, um, and we have had low voter turnout. And any, I think lover of this country would say it would be better if we had bigger voter turnout and to like I say to to try and, and stifle that to me is um, I don't want to say anti-American uh, but I'll say it's devious is that the right word I think that's fair pretty pretty hot take there but I'm so okay with hot takes so it comes down to to what extent do you think voter fraud is an issue? Because if you think that this is going to make it very easy uh, for people to cast fraudulent votes, that's the defense I think that Trump is taking here. Mm -hmm. It'll be too easy. Um, and that raises the question of, well, how big of an issue is voter fraud currently? Um, there have been studies... Um, that indicate it's a very small issue, that there's an extremely small percentage of voter fraud that does occur. Obviously, it could be happening without people knowing, but uh, North Carolina recently had its own uh, large-scale fraud case, so we were in national news uh, for months as this dragged out, uh, but it was actually carried out by uh, Republicans at the, the local level uh, who were illegally collecting absentee ballots in order to increase uh, support for the Republican candidate in the 9th Congressional District, which I believe is down east. It's near like Charlotte. 
Okay. Complete opposite. <laughs> <laughs> I believe it's down southwest. Yeah, it's Mark, east of Tennessee. Mark Harris was a Republican um, running in that district. Um, he's down near Charlotte. So the they were caught. They were convicted, the people who participated. So Mark Harris, uh, I don't think that they charged him with anything, if, if I'm correct. No. He, he was supposedly didn't know what was happening. Um, right. Claim, Forte, he claims. Claims he didn't, which it's, it's very possible that they operated without his knowledge, yeah. um, especially to give him deniability if something did happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they were caught, the people who participated were caught and convicted. And the election was overturned. I think it went to the North Carolina Supreme Court. Uh, the case, uh, I would have to go back and check. Uh, but either way, elections overturned. A new election was called for and, and held. So that helps Trump's argument in a way, saying that voter fraud does happen, although it was Republicans who were carrying out this instance of uh, voter fraud. You know, there's an article we'll link down below that kind of looks through a bunch of data from the Heritage Foundation that, you know, the Heritage Foundation is a Republican think tank, and they're pushing forward the same idea that Trump is, that mail-in voting could cause a lot more fraud. But if you look at the data, it, it really doesn't say that. It really says, no, this is a tiny issue. Over like a 15-year period in one state, there was like, there was like 15 cases. So you're saying one case a year. And then the great point Conway brings up with the Republican um, uh, Republican election is that is that they caught them. They found them. They redid the election. So the system worked. We caught the fraud in that case. So I, I you could potentially use that to say people are going to try to use mail-in ballots for fraud. But the reality is, is that I think if it's a large enough scheme, hopefully the American system is going to catch up. Yeah, so... Again, hopefully you go back and, and look at it, but I know some people won't click on the link. I just want to – the Heritage Foundation, again, this is the – it's a right wing, and we're only pointing that out to to make sure that we understand that we're not trying to come at this from a partisan um, uh, angle here, but more so to the point that this uh, foundation did a, did a study. And so I'm going to take the three most populous states on this list that do mail-in voting. There's Colorado, Oregon, and Washington. And so – um, in Colorado, in a study uh, from uh, 2005 to 2018, um, and they started voting in uh, by mail in 2013, so it's taking all voter fraud cases. In Colorado, um, 14 cases of voter fraud were found um, from uh, 2005 to 2018. I mean, that is minuscule compared to the 16 million votes that were cast in that time period. Oregon, 15 out of the 15.5 million votes. Washington, 12 out of the 10.6. So this is a foundation that you could suggest was was looking really hard for voter fraud. Um, and they found next to nothing. Um, and so, yeah, I think this shows us that, that the, this idea that um, the mail-in vote is just going to be rampant fraud has been debunked in these, you could almost say, trial runs in Colorado, Oregon, Washington. Yeah. And I think at the end of this conversation, the idea here is that if you're stuck in this echo chamber, so to speak, of hearing what Trump is saying or hearing what the Democrats are saying, either on the post office or mail-in voting, 
step out for a second, read the sources, look at the data, make decisions for yourself, and the conclusion you come to, at least you're going to know, hey, it's founded in research, it's founded in hard facts, and, and that's what we're encouraging you to do by introducing you to this topic. Real quick, before we uh, totally say goodbye, we're in the middle of a pandemic here. People are still stuck at home. People are quarantining. Our students are at home. So a lot of people are looking for ways to entertain themselves. So I'm going to give you all a hot take, and I'm going to ask you to defend it. The Office is the best comedy sitcom on television. Hands down. No question whatsoever. Best comedy sitcom on TV, on paper, on whatever device you watch things on. <laughs> you watch a show on, <laughs> on paper. It, it, it watching The matter. Office on an 8x11. Uh, I would watch it without a doubt. On, I would watch it on paper. I mean, I watched some great shows over the year. And so I'm a little bit more hesitant than you. Like, some that come to mind are uh, Parks and Rec, obviously, is the big like. Obviously great. Yeah. Friends, I never watched. I don't think Friends is good. Um, never that's got one that people it. throw out. Is it really funny? I don't even know if it is. Uh, and then... Seinfeld. Yeah. Timeless. Yeah. I go with It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, which is really irreverent and, and uh, you know, not everyone's favorite. But at the end of the day, which show do I want to go back to and watch over and over again? It's The Office, for sure. Absolutely. I have a problem with shows that use a, a laugh track. And that immediately discounts them in my book. If if you are funny, you don't need cues to tell people what is funny. Uh, and especially if, if you've never watched like a YouTube video where they take away the laugh track from these sitcoms with <laughs> yeah. laugh tracks, it is the most awkward thing in the world because yeah. they're just these like three to five second pauses after mildly funny or even not funny lines where you're supposed to sit there and they're trying to tell you to laugh, but if no one's laughing, it's just incredibly awkward. I have one exception, and that is King of Queens, I think, was a hilarious yeah, show. Stellar. Yeah. But Kevin generally, James, generally speaking, I agree with you, though. So, last question here. Most rewatchable episode of The Office, I'll start The Dinner Party. I just, I don't think you can go wrong. It's the most cringy moments of television yet so quotable, just from the opening scene where Michael traps Jim into the dinner party he's been avoiding for almost the whole season so far, uh, to the moment where Jan breaks the plasma, the two-inch plasma screen TV that Michael's been saving for years, to her secretary's amazing jam that you can find on YouTube Music. Um, you Made Me a Man, I believe, is oh, the song. <laughs> There's just... So many moments. So with that, that episode, episode in particular, so one thing I found out, and I hadn't really thought about it, is some people don't like The Office because the cringe worthiness makes them so uncomfortable that they it, they just can't do it. Right. And I, I didn't really think about that, but then I saw that episode, and I could kind of get what they're going with because that is one of those just totally uncomfortable episodes. Like, hey, Michael, do you want to tell them why the screen door's broken? <laughs> I don't, I don't remember this. Yeah, oh, it's, it's good. I just remember the plasma screen and the candle room. <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, Michael trying to sell them on investing in her business, 10 grand. And, and I think we can all identify with it a little bit too. At being at a dinner party that you're already kind of unsure of being at, and you're stuck there. Yeah. Am I alone in feeling? Have you ever felt that way, Kyle? You're young. I've never felt stuck at a dinner party, but. To be fair, I haven't attended that many dinner parties with the dynamics of what happened 
in the office mm. where Dwight brought his babysitter, who was like from a child, and she she was what in her eighties. Yes, definitely. What about you guys? Any re- most rewatchable episode for you? Uh, this is a bit of a cop out because I don't have a favorite episode, but I have a favorite kind of storyline or relationship. Uh, I like Michael and Toby's relationship uh, the best yes. out of any relationship in the whole show. And it's just like Michael's innate, and it's really not just Michael, it's basically everybody in the show, their attitude towards HR. And because Toby gets, there are various characters that will come in, uh, and no matter who it is in the HR positions, Michael hates them. I guess with, oh, Till gosh, this, I really got derailed here, yeah, because Holly doesn't fit that mold. Okay, so I walk it back. Michael and Toby, no matter what Toby does, no matter how good it is or nice it is, Michael refuses to accept it and will all like always just completely shut Toby down. And really whoever's in the manager role, when Jim becomes manager, he has the same attitude towards Toby. Um, so it's it's funny to watch. I hope that doesn't say something about me as a person that, that my favorite <laughs> like character dynamic is the one where Michael just hates on Toby relentlessly. Like who do you think you are? <laughs> when oh, he's entered oh, that was uh... the, the uh the exit interview. My niece had a good uh, test, the Enneagrams, which I'm sure you guys don't do, but like your personality test. And my niece was like, I'm an Enneagram uh, Dwight with a wing uh, creed or something. That was hilarious. But, I'll have to look that up, the yeah. office Enneagram test. Yeah. yeah. What about you, Owens? So like, I don't remember episodes quite like you guys do. Uh, it all kind of bleeds together. So like the one that comes in my mind I mean, the best opening, of course, is the the fire drill one, right? <laughs> Obviously, that's incredible. You can YouTube that, and it's just great. But uh, the one that comes to my mind is when uh, Mike uh, Michael Scott burns his his foot on the George, George Orman Orman grill. <laughs> I like to wake up so to the smell, the smell of bacon. bacon. So sue me. Uh, I don't even remember what happens that episode. All I just know. Michael Scott cracks me up. And I think one of my favorite things about The Office, one of the reasons I would call the show The Goat, is that it's so quotable. There's so many moments. Like, hey, Michael, what was the worst part about prison? The Dementus. <laughs> just all of these absolutely outrageous quotes uh, that just spark people's memory from watching the uh, show. You know what else is a good one? When he's playing that tape of him on that TV show. I think it was called Fundle Bundle. <laughs> 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 like, what do you want to be when you grow up? I want to have be married and have all sorts of kids so I have friends. <laughs> <laughs> but that's another cringeworthy moment, right? It is. Like, oh, oh my gosh. Because all the kids turn to him and like, are you, did you get married? He is unmarried, no kids. No, I, <sighs> I think the, the best way to leave the episode is with Conway's favorite quote and potentially his life motto. Oh, it's it hangs on, on the wall of our house. It's uh, Michael Scott says... you got to play it on YouTube. Yeah. Would you rather be feared or loved? Easy, both. I want people to be afraid of how much they love me. Mm. That's that's something to live by, people. Words to live by, though. Well, thank you guys so much for joining us this week. Uh, thanks to Adam Altman's. Yeah. Pierce Conway. Yes, sir. And I'm Russell McBride. We will see you guys next week on Monday. <laughs>